Then why don't you go ahead and open up to the book of Genesis, and we will uh, be reading from that this morning. And so what we're going to do this morning as we look at Genesis is kind of do a Bible study that is based off of, oh, there's the printed notes. That'll even be easier. Thank you, Miriam. I'm glad someone in this family has a brain. All right. So we're going to be studying the Bible, um, obviously, but doing a Bible study that I've done in the life groups. And um, it's something that I think has been really really interesting. It's something that I've done for our, uh, our mission work as well. It's a way of looking at the story in a way that helps us to see where it's all going and to th- think about the themes that are in the Bible. And so it's kind of an adaptation of what we usually do as a Bible study, but more as a sermon. And that helps me to uh, be lazy, and that's something that I'm always for as well, right? No, but it did save me a little time getting to use something over again. But that means that I want to kind of say sorry for those of you who have already had this Bible study that are in the life groups or have been part of our Bible study because you've heard it. But maybe something will stick just a little bit better, something a little bit deeper, or you'll grasp it in a bigger way. For those of you who haven't, I hope that it, it will really give you a good, deep understanding of the big picture, the big story of the Bible. Now, in this church, we've often said, and probably you've heard it elsewhere, that the story of the Bible is a grand story. It's one big story. But just as in a moment of thinking about it for yourselves, do you see how? Can you relate the beginning and the middle and the end to each other? Maybe you can say what happens in different points, but you see how there's a connection to them, to the different parts. Do you see how it all is one flowing thing? Well, I believe that if we take the time to really drill into the beginning of Genesis, I think that we're going to be able to better see God's unfolding story, his unfolding plan of salvation throughout history. Now again, by story, if I'm saying the Bible story, just like I said with the kids, I don't mean fictional I don't even mean historical fiction. I mean a historical account in a grand narrative. It's the story about God and his creation. But what's fascinating is when you look at the story, it's told in a variety of different ways. It has multiple authors told over thousands of years in multiple genres, in multiple languages, and it uses a variety of different themes to tell the story. It's really amazing. But I think that the best, most artistic things have this kind of diversity and unity together. The best songs, I think, also have this as well. And just by way of one example, I'm going to skip to a song that predates all of us so we won't have any culture wars here, any generational wars, all right? It's going to go back to Beethoven. How many of you know Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? Symphony. Some of you raise your hand, some of you know it by name, but you might all know it by its theme. And you're gonna make me sing now. Dun, 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 dun. Now how many of you know it? Yeah, it's a theme that he develops, and I think Beethoven was genius because he states this theme very clearly at the beginning, and then he plays it a whole bunch of times for the next rest of the song, from the very first line through the very last stanzas of this song, you get that same rhythm. But it's told in this amazing different variety of ways, from high notes to low notes, this instrument, that instrument, this speed, that speed, sometimes in the foreground, sometimes in the background. But over and over, this theme comes up, and it kind of unifies the whole song together. You guys remember some of the rest of it? Once you know the first theme, dun-dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun, then it goes on and goes da 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 I don't know if I hit all the right notes, but you go know what I'm talking about. And so you hear that theme all of a sudden played a lot more rapid fire, but you kind of get the idea. You're like, ah, this is what's going to be happening in this. And it gives the song a lot of artistic beauty. It gives storytelling, when you use themes, a lot of artistic beauty as well. It just makes it something that, that, that diversity and unity combined makes it really artistically appealing. And when you do this in storytelling as well, just like in that song, it makes it really easy to stick in the mind. Once I said those notes, or you're saying, tried to sing those notes, um, it came up, even if you didn't know the name of the song. Similarly, in a story, if you know the theme, it's going to help you to remember the story in a greater way. And as we look at the beginning of God's story, it's the same kind of thing. 
there's going to be themes that start out, and they're going to resound throughout the rest of the Bible. And I think that's an amazing way, a really, hopefully for you, also a helpful way of thinking about God's Word and seeing how it all ties together. And so let's look together at those first resounding notes, those first themes in God's Word. Because when we see the beginning, see where things have come from, where the story begins, we're going to understand why Jesus is so necessary. And we're going to see why the end ends up where it ends up. And so we're going to get a better grasp of the whole picture. But also as we start to read Genesis 1, as we're thinking about this as a story, albeit the true story, I want you to use your mind, your God-given mind, to paint a picture just as you would if you were reading a book, reading a good narrative. Think about it in color, use dimension, try to put the pieces of the puzzle together, and just utilize what God has given you there. And then also, just listen for those literary themes that are beginning in Genesis 1. And we're going to see how those repeat and resound throughout Scripture. So, let's start by reading Genesis 1 together. I know this is going to be a little bit longer to read it, but it means if I read it now that I, won't have, I can just refer to it through the rest of the, the time that we have together here instead of reading it again and again. So, let's read this. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault, a space, or a firmament in some of your translations, between the waters to separate the water. And so God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with their seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vaults, vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern or rule in some of your translations, the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the light, uh, to, uh, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds 
in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made was good. All that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now I want to go to chapter 2 just for a few quick verses that talks about day 7. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So, on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. You starting to get some good pictures in your mind of what's going on here? I bet they are better pictures than what I'm going to draw, but I'm going to try to visualize this as we talk about some of these grand themes, these themes that are going to go through the, the rest of Scripture. And so as we're looking at it, let's just start here. There will be other ones that you will think of and that I want you to think of, but these are the ones that are kind, we're going to kind of highlight and see how they go through Scripture, see how they, they tie beginning and middle and end together. So for the very first one, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then there were, God created this something that was there, and what does it say in the Bible that it was like? It was dark, right? So I'm choosing brown, because brown on, black on black won't work too well, so I'm going to choose brown and draw something brown, because it was dark, and it was formless or shapeless, so I'm going to draw it squiggly. That doesn't have a shape, Right? And it's empty, or it was void. It had nothing in it. it. It was just this nothingness, this nutty soupiness. And it's interesting that the author of this said that it was the face of the waters. And I think that's a really helpful picture if we think about what this soupy, empty, dark mass was. Think about if you go to a lake, and it's nighttime. And maybe you see a little bit of the stars glinting off of it, so you can kind of make out a couple little things. That wouldn't have been the case here. But just for the sake of starting to, to, to understand it, if you were looking at this lake, you would see these waves happening. And maybe the wind is blowing a little bit, and you see it sloshing this way and that way. But it doesn't have a particular pattern to it, does it? It's very random. Splash this way, slosh that way. You can't tell what it's going to do. And from your perspective, when it's nighttime, you're looking at the surface of this. You can't tell if there's anything in there. It's empty for all you know. I mean, we can make a fair guess. Maybe there's some fish in there. All of us fishermen sure hope so, but I'm pretty sure it's empty. But in any case, it, from our perspective, looking at that water, it's empty. And without light, it's dark. It's this randomness. It's chaos. It's, it doesn't have a rhyme or a pattern necessarily. And that's what's going on at the beginning. God makes this something, and then he starts making something out of it. But this something isn't as good as what he is going to make down the road either. It's not morally bad, but it's not the good thing that's going to come later down the road. Now, let's start thinking of themes. Are there any places in the Bible where there's chaos, where there's darkness, and where there is randomness, this purposelessness, this emptiness, throughout scriptures. There's a bunch of them. And for right now, just because we need to move on in this time, hold those in your mind. We'll try to talk about at least a couple of them as we go on. But then something happens. Here's this blob, chaos, randomness. But God's there. But how is he there? It says that his spirit is there, right? I'm just going to draw another symbol. There. His spirit is there. 
got to symbolize something that's invisible somehow. But I think that might be helpful. And this kind of looks like a little bit of wind blowing, or at least that's my intention in drawing it. I know I'm a horrible drawer. Don't, don't, don't judge me too hard. Um, but if this is why I, I chose that symbol, is because when you look in Hebrew, the word spirit also means breath and also means wind. You're like, well, how do those relate? Well, I want you to do something. I want you to take your hand, put it in front of your mouth like this, and don't breathe hard, but I want you just to say, hello. Yeah, and don't, don't spit on it. No, I'm just teasing. Um, hello. Did you feel anything on your hand? You felt something, right? Could you see something? No. So there is, when you made the decision to actually follow my instructions, congratulations for those who did, some of you didn't, and that's all right, that we all have our own free will. But that's the point. It takes a will for there to be a, a breath come out when we speak. It's invisible, but there's a force behind it. It's the same thing with the Spirit of God. It is a person that has a will. It is one of the three persons of God. It's not merely a force, but it is the active, moving God that you don't see. Sometimes God is manifest, and you see him working. Sometimes he's not, and his spirit's there and at work. Now, if we think about this throughout the rest of Scripture, can you think of other times where there is wind or breath or God moving in an invisible way? Comes up a bunch, doesn't it? It's a grand theme, and when you see these things happening, you'll start to see, oh, this is God making a new creation. This is how God is invisible but active in making a new creation. So God speaks, and things start to get made. And so we're going to move on to day one, and let's start to think about that. On day one, what does he create? What? Okay, so heavens and the earth, here's the faceless watery, or the face of the waters, this watery chaos. God's presence in the spirit is there, and on day one, God spoke, and there was light. So, I'm going to use yellow here, and there was light shining. And he separated it from the dark, and so things get a little bit more order, and they start to shine. But as we think about this light, is that a theme that comes up again and again and again in the Bible? You can probably think of a few times when it does. Sometimes it's talk, spoken about literally. There's a new day, the sun comes up, those kinds of things. Or it's night and then day patterns. Sometimes it's, the light is metaphorical. And the light of truth is separated from the darkness, the lies, God, you know, things that are not true. There's one story that I've thought of, maybe you can think of others where there's light and darkness, where Jesus is with a blind man and some Pharisees. And Jesus comes to the blind man and he heals him. There's a man that he can't get physical light into his eyes and he doesn't know who Jesus is. But Jesus heals him. He starts to be able to receive that literal light. But then he also comes to understand who Jesus is. And so he sees the metaphorical light. He sees the truth of who Jesus is. But that's very inter interestingly contrasted to these Pharisees that are also right there. They see physical light. They always have been able to. But they, even at the end of the story, after they see the miraculous work of God, as Jesus performs this miracle, they still don't see the truth, the metaphorical light. And so you see these themes come together in different places throughout Scripture. And the Bible says Jesus is the light, the light of the world. Let's keep moving on. We're going to be doing this pretty quick. There may be other thoughts flashing through your brain. I'd love to talk to you afterwards if, if you want to as well. Day two, what happens? God takes those waters and whoop, they separate. The water's above, there's waters below. Let's draw something like this. Let's not delete everything. Okay, there we go. All right, the water's above, and there's the waters below, and they're separated. Can you think of any stories in the Bible about water separating? Hmm. I'm going to skip over the one you're probably thinking of. <laughs> I'm going to go to Jesus. Do you remember when he was on the boat with his disciples and it was nighttime? That's an interesting little point now that we know what we know. And there's a bad storm. And it describes that there are waves 
and that there's a storm. You get it? Waves up, storm causing rain to fall down. Are the waters separated? Nope. But what does he do? The disciples in fear wake him up and say, Jesus, help us. <laughs> he says, oh, you of little faith. And he stands up and he speaks. He rebukes the wind and the waves and whoosh, the waters below and the waters above get separated. So what is it telling us about Jesus? Just like God spoke in the beginning and separated the waters, and God said, let the waters be separate, Jesus spoke and the waters be separated. Jesus is the creator God in the Bible. He's the light, he is the truth, and he is the creator God. Let's keep moving on. We're going to move quickly here. Day three, what does God create? Land. Can you think of any stories about land? Promised land. Let's keep moving. Um, <laughs> you're going to get my point. Um, but that's not the only thing he created on this day. He starts to make vegetation. Can you think of any time that Jesus talks about fields? Grass? The lilies of the field? Um, moving on. Um, God also makes things with fruit on it. Plants with fruit. Can you think of any plants that have fruit? Uh, or, or excuse me, seeds. Specifically, it says that there are plants with seeds in it. And we might be thinking of me, in any case, like you know, all my broccoli and lettuce that I gather the, the seeds from at the end or something like that. But how about something as simple as grain? Can you think of any times the Bible talks about grain and its, and its uses and its uses before God even? Yeah, so the fruit of a plant comes up a lot. How about the other thing that's made here? Um, I'm going to draw it like this. God makes trees on this day as well. Are there any stories about trees? Of course there are. Especially when you start to understand the Hebrew word actually just means wood. Now think about things that are made out of wood. And th also think of this. Here, here's something fun. This is fun to think about how these patterns echo, and it might illustrate my point a little bit more. There is a time in the Bible that wood gets translated as bush for us. It's called the Seneh bush. So, the bush at Mount Sinai, it's made out of wood. It's the Sinai wood. And so you start to see this amazing pattern. Well, in chapter 2, we start to hear about... Um, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We start to hear about, well, people sin, and so there's all kinds of problems. Things get ultra bad by Genesis 6, and there's a flood. But God commands Noah to go and get wood and build a means of rescue. Go forward. There's Abraham, and he's told to put a bunch of wood on his son's back and go sacrifice his son. But he trusts that God is going to provide. And sure enough, to burn that sacrifice on that wood, it's not his one and only son, not Abraham's son, um, not the, the, the seed, I should say, that the offspring, not the one that we are afraid is going to be lost, the one that's supposed to be of, of the rescuer line. But God makes a way for there to be a different kind of rescue by not sacrificing on this wood. You go a little bit further, and you get to Mount Sinai, where Moses goes and sees the burning wood, and God's presence is right there. And just then, all the Israelites go out. After they get rescued out of Egypt, they go and they worship at a place where this exact wood is at, at Mount Sinai. And that's where God comes to them and speaks to them. Fast forward a whole bunch of the story, and there's a bunch of other times that wood is specifically and sometimes agonizingly drawn out. Like when it's describing the temple, think of how much it talks about how many of this wood and that wood were go into the temple. Well, it's a place for the central presence of God to save his people. It's fascinating. But you get to Jesus, and can you think about something he did on a tree, on some wood? He died on a cross for our sins. He's the means of rescue. He's the one and only son that is provided by God himself. He is our deliverer, and he did that for sinful people like us. That's jumping ahead a little bit. But you can see how these themes start to tie forward again, again, and again. 
I want to take these three as a, just a quick example of how these themes come sometimes come together in a, a bigger theme. Go back to Moses in your minds for just a second. And remember how, okay, so they are getting to, the Israelites are getting to escape Egypt. And the, the, the Pharaoh's army is coming after them to put them back into slavery. They just left the darkness. Remember how there was the plague that was dark? They're leaving this dark place, this place of death, this chaos, the slavery that they've been in. And they're being rescued out of it. But then they come up to a new watery chaos. And they've got to be thinking, is this watery chaos or is this chaos going to overtake us? But they pray. And this is what it says in Exodus. Read this sometime if you, if you want to. It's fascinating. It says that, that Moses prays on behalf of the people, and then all night long, a wind blows, and the waters separate. And in the morning, the people walk across dry land to go and worship God at the foot of the mountain where the Sinai tree or wood is at. See how all those things are starting to come together in some really fascinating ways? It's a way of seeing the themes tied together to tell us, oh, God is leading these people. He is providing a means of deliverance, of rescue, into a new creation. Interesting to think about. We're going to keep moving on. We're going to run out of time if I don't keep moving on. Day four, what does God create? The sun. If I heard that right, the sun. There we go, the sun, the moon, and stars. Things that shine in the, in the night, right? Here's an interesting uh, thought for you. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the sun or the light? Light. Did God need the sun in order to, for light to exist? And not according to Genesis, not if we believe that this is a historical account. God gave a responsibility to a part of his creation to do something that he perfectly well can handle and do himself. He says that they are to rule over the night and the day, that they are to rule, they're supposed to be the, the caretakers or the managers, the rulers, of keeping track of minutes, or te technically days, months, and years, is what it talks about in the Bible. But God doesn't get tired. He could have done that, but he likes to share. Something in his character wants to share responsibility with his creation. And here he's doing it with the sun and the moon and the stars. But it's also careful, if we follow this theme throughout the Bible, we've got to be careful to notice that again and again it says, these are rulers over these domains. God has given them a responsibility, but they aren't the ultimate ruler. They may have a kingship of sorts of managing the days and the months and the years, but they're not the king of kings. They're not the one that's above all of this. So don't worship them. Worship God himself. Keep that idea of rulership in your pocket for a second. We'll come back to it. Day five, what does God create? Birds. How's that look for some really awesome birds? Where does he put them? In the waters above. That's their area. What else does he make on that day? Fish. Yeah. And where does he put them? The waters below. Interesting. One quick note. Birds in Hebrew actually just means flyers. And when it talks about fish and the great sea creatures, it's talking about all those swimmers. So you could think about this in very broad terms as you're reading through the Bible and looking for these themes. Look for flyers and look for swimmers. <laughs> Make sense so far? <laughs> um, I'm not going to get into all the times these come up, but I want to mention one time where these themes do seem to overlap, Old Testament and with Jesus. Again, talking about Moses and the Israelites, remember how they were in the desert and they were getting hungry. And God provides for them two things, manna, which is a bread-like substance that they could grind up and make into bread, and quail, flyers, would come in. He would feed them. Do you find it interesting, thinking about these themes going through then, that Jesus, when he feeds the 4,000 and the 5,000, uses bread and fish? Is it 
supposed to be telling us that there's some sort of overlap in concept of God's provision of who Jesus is. He is the God of the universe, the God that takes care of Israel, the God that feeds, that manages, takes care of his people. I think you can see some overlap there. Let's move on. Day six, what does God create? Lots of things. That's going to be too small for what I want to do. Okay. Yeah. A few things. One of them, I heard mankind. But before that, what does he make? Um, some of our translations say livestock. Does that look like livestock to you? Um, that's a very generic livestock. That could be a cow. If you're an ancient Israelite, maybe that's a sheep or a goat, all right? We'll just say that it was intentionally ambiguous. All right. Um, what else does he make? Wild beasts, right? So there's these tame ones that people get to work alongside, that, that we can um, do all kinds of things with, use their wool, get their milk, make clothes out of, all kinds of stuff. There's tame beasts, there's wild beasts. And there's one other kind of creature, creepy crawlies. Let's just think about this for a second. Can you think of times in the Bible where animals that are tame work alongside people or where God requires them for something? Can you think of someone who is called the Lamb of God? Who is the sacrifice? Who's a stand-in for us when we don't obey God? Yeah, this idea goes through the Bible. Can you think of any times in the Bible when humans, instead of rightly working alongside or avoiding the beasts, <laughs> the livestock or the beasts, actually succumb to the beasts? in a few different ways, right? You get the book to Revelation and Daniel, you hear a lot about the beast. Can you think of any times when we hear about a, a particular creepy crawly? <laughs> the serpent. Yeah. This comes up, these are themes that will go throughout the rest of the Bible, and they help us to see something that, about who we are. And I want to take a little bit more time to think about this. So, as we have been going... Let me, just, let me just catch up to where we're at, and then I'm going to get to this next idea. We've been going from a place that is dark, but God creates light. A place that has no shape, but God separates things into the right places. A place that is empty, and when you look at the left drawings compared to the right, God starts to fill everything up on the right-hand column. Everything's getting bigger, better, brighter, and then at the very culmination of it comes mankind the absolute biggest, best, most amazing thing in all of God's creation is humans. We are placed in a really, really high place in God's creation. We are called his image. Somehow we reflect who God is. And so God makes them male and female. And uh, I know that not all ladies wear dresses but you can see the struggle that I'm having drawing these stick figures already, so bear with me here. Ladies have hair, too. I don't know if guys do or not. I've heard that. Um, but anyway, there's male and female. God creates humans side by side with this really high place as the image of God. And he gives them an incredible purpose as the image of God. He tells them to rule over part of his creation. So think about this in parallel to what we just learned about the sun and the moon and the stars. The sun and the moon are meant to rule these places, to do things that, yes, God can perfectly well do. He's not too lazy to, but he wants to share this with part of his creation, part of that responsibility. Here's humans that are told to have dominion or rulership over the birds and the fish and the animals. They are told to take care of, to manage a part of creation, and that's their their responsibility. It's a really high, high calling, actually, to be God's representative in this creation. As a quick thought, how well have we done on that? Not so good. <laughs> Pretty often, we, just like humans, I'm talking very broadly here, 
have looked to other things. Let me, let me start it this way. Oftentimes, we look at the wrong things to, uh, as the king of kings. If humans were meant to, to have this incredible place and this incredible purpose, this incredibly pl- high place in God's creation, that means that we shouldn't be looking... Ah, I'm, I'm getting my, my thoughts jumbled up here. That's why some pastors write these notes down. We have this incredible place, but what are we in comparison to God? We are still rulers under the ruler, right? Just, and therefore, just as it is wrong for us to look to the sun and the moon and the stars and think that they are the ultimate rulers, but it's really God, it is also wrong for us to look to ourselves and believe that we are the ultimate rulers. And so we need to realize where our place is in this. We have an incredibly high status. We are, in a sense, kings and queens under God, or this is our intention. But we've messed that up again and again. And that's why we need a rescuer. But let's move on to something. One last thing before we kind of do one big wrap-up here. Let's look at day seven together. On day seven, it says that God is wrapping things up. All of his creation's done, but it uses three verbs in particular about what God does on this day. It says that he completed everything, everything is full, everything has a shape, everything is good, everything is right, everything has its place. It's not this random blob dark thing, it's good, it's whole, filled up, purposeful. It also says that God blesses the seventh day. He says, here's all the things that you're going to need. All the creatures, you're going to have abundance. You're going to have what you need. I am going to take care of you. And it's going to, his intent is that it's going to get better and better and better. Fruitful and multiply, increasing goodness throughout all the world. Especially if humans would have followed what we were supposed to do and be God's representative to the rest of the world and do what God asks us to do. That could have spread. That, could, that goodness could have spread and been a blessing to the whole world. But then it says that he rests. And when we see that word rest, maybe we think of something like this, a chair. (laughs) But does God need to truly rest? Did he get wore out by the previous six days of work? Well, we believe that God is infinite power. So that can't be what it means. And also, I think God is giving us an example for what we are supposed to do once a week. But I think there's another layer to this that we need to understand what this rest entails. Whenever this rest com- idea of rest comes up as a theme throughout the rest of the Bible, we see it happening at a particular time. One time is in the book of Judges. Joshua, more particularly, not in Judges, but in Joshua. Joshua and the Israelites come into the promised land, and there's all these enemies against God. They're, they're ultimately rebellious against God, and they are going to only taint what God has created. And so God says they need to be expelled one way or another. When this happens, when it's done, when it's mostly complete, I mean, we hear these little whispers that maybe there were pockets where even the Israelites failed. But when the, this major work is done, it says that there was rest in the land. Right? When these people come to rightly take a place of creation that God has designed for them, they rest. They're the caretakers of it now. When David is um, just finishing up, he has all his struggle with Saul, and there's Saul's family that go into all kinds of uh, um, fits, basically, against him becoming king. And when that all comes about, when David sits down on his throne, it says that he and the land have rest. And so the idea is when God's creation, when his representatives, when he, when, or particularly when anybody comes into a rightful place that God has designed for them and there is God's goodness, a new create, type of creation started, the king or the leader sits down and there is rest in the land. He is now able to rule in completion, 
in blessing over the land that is before him. So God here creates all these things, and now he's at a place where he can sit and rule, not from a chair, but if we were to draw something to make us see it, it's from his throne. It's the throne of God. This is his kingdom that he's making. And so here's where all these themes start to to tie together. We see all the different themes and how they're going to go throughout the rest of the Bible, but the grand theme of Genesis 1 that it's talking about is that God has created and established his kingdom. And this is an idea that you can get from other words that we didn't talk about in the themes from here, but let's talk sometime. I'd love to do that. But God has established his kingdom. His creation is his kingdom. And there's a kind of a hierarchy. There's God, and there's parts of his creation that rule under him. And that's when things are good and right, and God is in charge of it, when we recognize that God is in charge of everything. But like I said before, we haven't lived up to our part of it very well. And in fact, we very often do not seek to establish God's kingdom, but we want to build up our own little kingdoms. Humankind in general, has done that again and again and again. Watch how the Bible talks about kingdoms throughout the Bible. We mess up a lot, and things go backwards. Creation goes backwards. Genesis 6, when mankind has fully rebelled, and there's, it talks about these city-states that different people have made and how evil they are and how bad they're getting, and then God says, I'm going to rewind all of creation so that I can reestablish my kingdom. And we see it go back all the way to the waters. And then God reestablishes his, his creation. But now, when we look to how this points forward to Jesus, that's the beginning of the story. God creates his kingdom. We see the Israelites in their kingdom and how God is starting something there. But then we get to Jesus, and something starts really amazing and really new. And watch how all of these different pieces of the puzzle come together. And you can find other parts of the pattern. I'm just going to put it one way that you can see these themes connecting. Jesus comes, and he claims that that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here, and it's started. It's not yet fully, fully completed, but it's starting, and it's starting in him, and he is taking his rightful throne. In order to take that rightful throne as king, he's tried by night. People hung him on a tree, which happens to be on a raised-up piece of land. The gospel writers specifically talk about his blood and water separate, being a sacrifice and yet able to cleanse us from sin, to deliver us from sin. But then he rose again, and the people realize it in the morning on the third day. And with all that Jesus did, we have the hope the belief, the trust that his work will deliver us completely from emptiness and from purposelessness and from the darkness of our individual sin and collectively as well. See how it's tying together? What's also amazing, and if I can just say how this might apply to our lives today, when we see that this is God's intent for creation from the beginning on, then we can see that no matter how deep or dark or chaotic our sin and our lives are against ourselves, against other people, and against God himself, we see that no matter where we're at, nothing is too great for God's work through the Holy Spirit in you. God can take you from wherever you are. He desires freedom. He desires rescue for you and me. Just as he's making a new creation here in Genesis, that's his desire for you and I. And when we give our lives to him, he will take the raw chaos of our lives and he will give us a form and a character and a purpose that is beyond anything that you can try to produce in your own way. And we also believe that when you receive Jesus Christ into your life, that that also means that the Holy Spirit is entering your life. The same spirit that is there at creation. And it says that we will be a new creation 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. That's our promise. That's our hope, is a change by looking to a different kingdom, looking to God as the king of kings, 
as revealed in Jesus Christ, we give up our kingdoms and we can see the hope of his kingdom. But all the story goes to the end as well. And we're going to look at one more passage just to see how these threads all connect together. And let's open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 1. And as I'm asking you to do that, I'm realizing we're going over time. Uh, The last two preachers uh, stopped early, so I'm just borrowing some of their leftover minutes, all right? But Revelation, chapter 21. And see how some of these themes start to come together. Chapter 21, starting in verse 1, says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's exactly how Genesis 1 starts. God created a heaven and an earth. Here God's recreating things. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. There's no longer of that chaos, the emptiness, the purposelessness. I saw the holy city, here's a kingdom, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's a new creation is coming. God's kingdom is being built. And his people are going to be restored to what we were supposed to be. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. The idea of the image of God created in Genesis 1 is that he made Children, people, that's how a kingship works in old times, is you, your child became, if you are a king, your child becomes the upcoming king, the prince or the prince. They're under you, but they're also alongside you in some ways, with some sort of given authority. And that's what the New Testament also says, is that when we believe in Jesus Christ, we become the children of God. We are restored to this incredibly high purpose of being God's children again. But we're not naturally that way. But thankfully, God's dealing with that. And verse 8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so this isn't just a given. Because of the sinfulness in our life, because we have not lived up to the high calling that God has set before us, because we fail in so many different ways, We don't rightfully deserve to be those children anymore. But that's exactly the promise of Jesus Christ, is that we can be a part of this kingdom by believing in him, by believing that he has established it in the beginning. This is his kingdom. He has taken the rightful throne of it in Jesus Christ, and he will finish it in the end. And so it's an incredibly, incredibly hopeful picture that we get throughout Bible. And the beginning ties to the middle, and ties to the end. You don't get to the, to the end without the middle. Without Jesus doing what he does, you don't end up in the good place in the end. So let's just wrap a few things up here real quick. First thought for you is, what is this story about? Or, excuse me, who is this story about? We know it's about God's kingdom, but it's about God. The very first character, and the only character that has any lines in the whole first chapter is God. This has got to be God's story. Mankind is a part of it, but it is not, we are not the main character. 
but we do have a role to play in it. And even to us individually, we are in it. We are actors in it. But we need to see our rightful place as not the main character, but we are people under the king. This is a story where we are simply support role. And so that's one of the very first things we've got to decide to realize in all of our lives is to give our life to Jesus Christ, to let him be the king of our lives, and that's how we will see new creation beginning now and then completed in the end. Here's your homework, because I'm not going to take any more of your time. I want you to take one of those themes that we've talked about today, on your own, at home, and just create a little themed way of sharing the gospel. Think about that. And then take Genesis 1 and tell that to one more person. I've asked people to do this in treatment centers before, and it's amazing. Some people don't, but some do. And some of them say, well, nobody wanted to listen to me. And I'm like, well, that's understandable. But you told them. You know, you talked to them about it. And some do, and they're so encouraged. They're like, I could tell part of the Bible in my own words. I could express it. And so... Find the right way to share the gospel through the story of Genesis, through those themes. Find a way and find a person to share that with this week. And I'll let you go at that. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your love. Thank you for uh, taking care of us. Thank you that you made a creation where we can be taken care of and that you're, you're promising your abundance and your blessing. God, we know that we have screwed that up again and again. Um, before we come to believe in you, we, we, we just regularly screw that up. And so, God, I pray that if we haven't made a decision to follow you, that we would look to you as the king of kings. You're the king of creation. You are our creator, and we are the creation. But you desire for us to recognize that and to submit to that, and therefore submit to your words as well, what you teach us to do in the Bible. God, we pray for those of us who have made a decision an initial time when we recognized you as King of Kings. God, if any of us, and every time that any of us have something that we are holding back for ourselves where we aren't submitting that to you, we aren't living as the King under the King, God, I pray that you will change us and transform us, that you will, as, you know, as, our, as your Spirit lives within us, that you will change us into a new creation as you promised. And we pray that we will let you do that. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for this grand story that we know is true, and we pray that it will become the story that we follow in our lives. In your name we pray all this, Jesus. Amen.